0: film society of lincoln center you're listening to the close-up each week we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers on today's two-part episode we'll hear from legendary producer norman lear who's the subject of the new documentary norman lear just another version of you now playing here at the film society and after that we'll go to a conversation with iranian master abbas Kiristami, who passed away on july 4th at the age of 76 Norman Lear was the mind behind influential 1970s sitcoms like All in the Family, The Jeffersons, and Maud. Directors Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, with Norman Lear Just Another Version of You, offer a loving portrait of the now 93-year-old legend as he reflects on his life and work. The film opened here at the Film Society last weekend, and the directors and subject joined us at the premiere for a Q&A. Let's go to that now.
1: I'm Hasan Minhaj. I'll be moderating and asking you guys the questions that we're all sort of thinking, I guess. Um, I, I first wanted to say it was it was an absolutely incredible film to watch, and uh, I wanted to ask you guys where did you get the idea of having young Norman be this character that you see throughout the film, and then meet slightly older Norman.
2: Can you? <laughs> I can only think of one thing at the moment. Sure. I was crying, I took off my glasses, so I can't find the fucking glasses.
3: Does anyone have his glasses?
2: Does anybody <laughs> got
1: my bring glasses? Up. Oh no,
3: someone bring them, someone bring them. Can
2: someone bring up the glasses? Oh, there we go. Oh.
3: It's a room full of gorgeous people, Norman. They're yes. beautiful, every last one of them.
1: Norman, thank you so much for being honest in the moment. And just not doing a Q and A. Oh.
4: Yeah. So, um, yeah, aren't oh, they pretty? You are. <laughs> Look at them. There they are. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a process that we, we developed it. But um, it started from this idea of this time in his life when we felt like so many things happened. And those things informed his work so much. And it was, imp- it was really important to weave those stories throughout. So how are we supposed to do it in a story that happened quite a long time ago, and we didn't have any material, so we came up with this sort of form and function concept of this avatar, this nine-year-old that lives inside of all of us, inside of Norman. Um, and he just, you know, we, we just went from that.
1: Did you Did you guys have that idea mid-production or was it like when did when did that happen where you were like it's we're gonna tell the story through the through the eyes of the well minute. we
3: talked about it early in the production and then we sort of said no let's table it for now and we sort of kept discussing it throughout um the the year and then once we had we were in the edit we were we continued to develop it and we really wanted we really like layered films we like watching layered films we like making layered films and we had a lot of archival material and original material. But we felt that there was an additional layer, because sometimes we'll be talking to Norman, and the nine-year-old will flash across his face. And I'm sure a nine-year-old flashes across mine too. Um, and it just became, we started talking about it. And uh, we decided to that it would be a layer of whimsicality and a little bit of melancholy. And, um, and, and that's what happened. So it was something that just evolved
4: and also the theater aspect of it was you know that was another thing that we since norman comes from a background of theater and he d- did a lot of his casting from theater actors it just felt right his his shows felt like three-act plays
1: why did you guys choose norman lear as your subject i mean i i, I mean i i you totally would but what was there was there <laughs>
3: Uh, well, Norman's a feminist. If you watch the movie, sure. No, no,
1: no. I fell asleep during that part. Still, was... Yeah,
3: he fell asleep during that part. But he's a feminist, and always actually, we admired him uh, partly because he always gave women, uh, producers and writers and other women chances and shots when it wasn't like trendy to do that. Um, and we had met him a couple years earlier on another project, and we were really surprised that there hadn't been a film about Norman. He was 92 at the time. And there was, we thought he was writing his book, and we said, why, why isn't there been a film made about you? And he said, haven't been ready, doing other things, writing my book. And we're like, well, let's do this thing now. And um, he was a fan of our work because of Jesus Camp and People for the American Way had honored the movie. And so we, we seemed like like-minded people when we sat down together.
4: And he invented Maude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: Didn't you, no,
5: Norman?
4: I'm,
2: uh, uh, OK, a bit speechless. Norman, I
1: had, a, I had a very specific question for you. So Rumi has this great poem. Um, and he says that, and my dad always told me this, and I never really got it. But he said, if you thirst for these two things in your life, you'll never be quenched. Um, one is knowledge, and one is dunya, the world. And if you go out, you'll meet those two types of people. And my parents always warned me as a, as a child of immigrants, don't go into Hollywood because you'll be chasing dunya forever. And what's amazing is that you were a person that came into the institution that is Hollywood, and you chased the opposite of dunya. And clearly, you've shown through your body of work that you've always had this thirst for knowledge. When did, when did you know that you had
2: that? But you know, I, I didn't come out there to do what I wound up doing. I had uh, one uncle who used to flick me up. they couldn't get everything. In the <laughs> there is a it's book. in the book. <laughs> there is a book. Uh, can, can I just say for a moment, you know, I was at Sundance when it opened and I saw it at Sundance, but so was my entire family. And I spent the viewing eagerly listening to all of them and wondering what they were thinking. And so. This is really the first time I've experienced this film fully. And I just haven't got enough words to tell you how artful I think it, the way you built it, the way, what you selected. I had, I never saw a rough cut, as you will attest. And uh, I've just blown away tonight. By this thank you, Norman, interview. thank you. Uh, I I came to California because I had one uncle. I was a kid of the Depression. My Uncle Jack used to flick me a quarter when he saw me. Or he did a time or three. I don't know. That was my role model. There wasn't another role model around. My folks were not in the habit They never actually ever asked me what I wanted to do in life. It just didn't come up. And That was it, I came out to be a pre- to California to be a, pre- I had, after the war, I came back to New York City and got a job as a press agent, which I actually got from Foggia, Italy. Between missions, <laughs> I stood w- over a little, uh, a printing shop, an Italian printer, and picked out letter after letter, and he, we sent to my Uncle Jack, who was the press agent, a one-page announcement that I was coming out of the army, and I was a brilliant mind. Of <laughs> I wanted to be the guy next to the guy who they said, who's that with so-and-so? <laughs> and I wanted to be the, the, the bat. And uh, so I wanted to be a press agent. My friend, Ed Simmons, wanted to be a comedy writer. And as they told the story one evening, we wrote this and sold it the same night. And I became a comedy writer. So there's none of this that I thought about in advance. Uh, and I wished only to be a good provider. Mm -hmm. The only times I ever thought about money was the first time I realized, I used to get up a little earlier flying across country uh, to uh, take out some flight insurance at the airport. I don't know whether you can still do that, but the day that I realized I could sleep a little later because I had enough insurance.
3: (laughs) That was the game changer. <laughs> that was, I, was, nice. I was
2: a good provider. Yeah. That was the message.
1: I had a qu- question. So, how did you choose to take 90? How did you pull off taking 93 years of life and cramming it into 90 minutes? Uh, 91. Minutes. 91 minutes. Right? Yeah. How did you do it? Well,
4: we had to cut a lot out.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it was really raw. We, we, we Rachel and I. Uh, we do mostly observational filmmaking and we've and never taken an interest in the biography, biography format. So it was already new to us. And then Norman had been around He'd been being recorded and videotaped for like 60 years, so there was so much stuff to watch. We're like, God, we wish he took a rest for a minute. (laughs) In the 80s, man, because then the the, the stuff kept coming in. Those interns, those those editors, there are wonderful editors, J.D. J.D. Marlowe, and not C.D. and Suzanne and everybody's. I mean, it was a feat, and it was. And my
2: son-in-law, John LePouk, and John LePouk,
3: and he had all of his drive. My daughter Kate for
2: 30 years. Filmed every minute of those 30 years. And we're like, oh uh, no, he did
3: all of those. <laughs> Norman's like, you gotta see the, like, okay, we were on it. And so it was it was actually completely panic stricken At one point it was just like Norman always says, onward next, onward next. And we were just be like, okay, we're gonna keep moving. If it wasn't an A, it was out, we never looked at it again. We're like, if the clip wasn't an A, we had, because there was so many great, great material. And so we just had, we had all these rules where it was like, a, not an A, is this an A? Is it, no, we wow. don't think it's, we never. So it was really like throwing stuff out because obviously a film is reductive about a 94 year old man with this kind of body of work and story, and luckily the, he had the, Norman, was, his book was gonna come out before the film. So he, the full story's out there. So that helped us a lot too, knowing that it was gonna be our take and it was gonna be what we thought was the most important. So and he was—he seems cool that he likes the movie. So. Yeah. <laughs>
1: there was two choices. Was it hard for you to see all the father stuff?
2: I felt the same way sitting uh, here through this. The way I behaved on the—I cried at the same times. Uh, it was very touching. I mean. Shit! It was my. my what can yeah. I uh, But Carol O'Connor uh, in that elevator when the baby is born—that look on his face. Yeah. When he's talking about his father, you know, I was very much involved in that scene. And uh, it, it, I'll see it fifty more times in the next years, and. It'll touch me that way every time.
1: Was it hard for you guys to also include that story about the grandfather, which I thought was so great?
4: No, I mean, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. It's um, for me.
2: Did I? I don't think I told that in the book. Did I?
4: No, no, no. No. So then, when we asked Norman, when we asked him, we had found it somewhere else in another book that. his family had made for him that didn't make it to his memoir. We asked him about it because it was a nice story and he looked panic (laughs) stricken And he said, was that in the book? And I was like, "Uh, I don't know. And he was, that's when he said, I lied. So um, no, I thought it was so interesting. It was amazing. It's, It's what makes him human. I mean, that's really the very simple takeaway it's what makes us human is the, the things that are we fragile, you know.
3: And only after that you told us that it, it wasn't true, which we found very interesting, and we all done it. Um, then we started looking for oh well, how often did you tell the story? We didn't know that it had also been something you've been telling on television. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're like, we're definitely using it. <laughs> uh, but I actually I was a little nervous. I, I felt a little I felt yeah, it's hard. It's like you know, we're doing our film and this is what, this is an interesting facet and yeah, there was, you know, it's, uh, we were a little nervous about um, hurting feelings and stuff, but it's, it was, it was important for us in the story.
4: Complex, I mean, it's complex, yeah.
2: and you want, I mean, why not? Before I saw it, I didn't know you, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about it, so I didn't know you were doing that, did I?
4: No. No, no, we, we definitely hid that from you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Norman lives in LA and we live in New York and during the edit, it was nice to have those 3,000 miles. for like. <laughs> He'll eventually That's see why, it. That's I mean, it was
1: crazy for me to watch because I was like, oh, Norman's going to see this. Yeah, I was like, yeah, Norman's going to see this. Right. This is great. And then you had pulled up all the footage. You know, I know like, yeah.
4: I know. There was more.
1: No, but it was, but it was I, I really loved how you said that you, you needed that. And I think there's all, we all have those sort of like emotional solves that we use
2: mm-hmm.
1: to, to sometimes go like, no, 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 that, that happened in my life and it helps us go on. And
4: also this idea, I love this idea, which is a takeaway for me of spending time with Norman, which is, you don't um, get over your life. You don't get over anything. You, you take the whole thing with you the whole time. So, you know, embrace that. That's, that's your life, you know. Yeah.
1: Uh, Norman, you said this thing that, you said, um, being a human is really, really hard. It is hard. And... Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna misquote it, but it was like, uh, it, at, towards the end of the film, uh, you said, uh, you have to be able to find your own happiness, and that's something, yeah, no. what, what, did, what did you like,
2: what did you I mean by that? I don't think any of us can make, we always talk about making somebody happy. Yeah. You can't make anybody happy. You are responsible to yourself for your own happiness, and uh, everybody is responsible to themselves for their own happiness. Of course you can be loved and, and, and be important in somebody's life and so but it has at the core of the being you are, you must find your own way. And you make for your own happiness. You agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. Is there anybody that doesn't?
1: <laughs> Biggest lesson learned in making this film about a living legend?
3: Never skip lunch. <laughs> okay, okay. Norman never skips lunch, and uh, we had a lot of great conversations <laughs> <laughs> over lunch. Where are we, eatin'? when are we eating? Um, but I actually mean never skip lunch in the sense that uh, we're documentary filmmakers, and our job is to watch, and to listen, and to eavesdrop, and to listen for dialogue, and how people say things. And that's our job, and I feel like we're good at it. But then we would go to lunch with Norman, and I would, he's, He wouldn't be on his phone. I would be checking my emails. He wouldn't be, he'd be, you know, kibitzing with the waitress and noticing someone across the way and making a comment to someone who walks by, watching, looking, really looking. And I'm like, I gotta do more, I gotta do this better. It shouldn't just be a job. It was really little details, honestly. And, And so when we would, especially when we would go to lunch, I would notice this. He would walk out really having a real conversation with a stranger and a takeaway. And, um, for me, that is my biggest takeaway of, of working, of working with Norman and now we're becoming friends and, um, that's something I want to do more of and I, I admire.
4: I would say my takeaway is very simple. It's hard to do, but it's really simple. It's to give a shit, just give a shit. Everything will work out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So two final questions what's in the water that made you so prolific? And obviously you've had an incredible life and you still have an amazing career. Do you have any major
2: regrets? Let me answer one thing first. Yeah. Uh, What was in the water was a lot of other talent. (laughs) A lot of writers, some great directors, and obviously the great performers. I, I did write the first, I wrote all of Archie Bunker, the first script. Yeah. But when, I mean, I can, you can all feel this, the, the way I feel it, I'm sure. I wrote the words. What did I imagine Archie, Archie Bunker would be? I can't tell you what I imagined. I wrote the words and Thanks to my lucky stars, Carol O'Connor walked in, sat down, and was Archie Bunker. I had nothing to do with that. He had everything to do with that, and the winds, the, be, the spirits, the I can never get over that. The same thing with Edith, the same thing with every bit of, every one of them. They inhabited a group of words on a sheet of paper, and the miracles, about. and uh, and we sat around a table, and each of these shows was six, eight other minds, all contributing, and uh, and this work developed. So I will take full credit for being. Uh, Rob used to call me uh, the Yiddish word tumler. I was the center tumler, and I stirred the pot, but uh, it was a big big pot of great talent. Regrets, biggest regret, any regrets? Uh, This is the absolute truth. I don't have a single regret because if I can be, this is my belief, if I can be as happy as I am this minute and I know it took everything I ever lived through, every moment, every second I ever lived, to get to this moment, how on earth can I regret anything? You guys, alright,
1: so, I'm actually, I'm actually not, this is going to be a, a, a very nerd out moment, but I would be remiss if I don't do this. Okay. <laughs> this is how I know God is real, okay? So, um, my family is from a small town in India called Uligar, uh, population 990,000, that's a small town in India. And <laughs> my father immigrated from Uligar to the United States of America in 1982. And we moved to this small town called Davis, California. <clears throat> and um, my dad, you know, when, he, when you, as a, as a son of immigrants, when, when you come and you roll the dice on this thing called the American Dream. The last thing you want your only son to do is go tell jokes to people late at <laughs> night in bars. And um, I, I decided to be a stand-up comedian at age 8, 18. And um, this, is, this is the impact that Norman Lear had, had in my life, indirectly, without me ever seeing any of his work growing up. My dad uh, did not want me to become a comedian, and I, and I decided to, to, to become one. And I, and I was doing it for years and years and years. And I got into this big fight with him. He, uh, I was about 20, 24 years old, 25 years old. My LSAT score was about to expire. And I had a great LSAT score. And my dad was like, you better apply to law school right now. And I'm in the car and I'm driving to a gig where I'm not getting paid. And he's like, you're going to law school. I said, dad, I'm not. He's like, "Huston, you're not Tom Cruise. And I'm, that's, that means success to my dad. There's, like, there's Tom Cruise, there's Barack Obama, and I guess there's nothing else. And I'm bawling. I'm crying, right? No, but this is what I want to do. Three years ago, I do this uh, documentary series through Katie Bonham Chateau called Stand Up Planet. It's about stand-up comedy around the world. It's basically Anthony Bourdain meets stand-up comedy. We learned about uh, comedians in India and South Africa and the Middle East, satirists that are really pushing the boundaries of of, of satire. Norman and Carl Reiner were the advisors on the project. I got to bring stand-up comedians from around the world to come meet. Meet him, And he sat there, it, he's just like the way he is right now and in the film, and he sat with uh, us young Padawans. Jewish Yoda sat with us and was telling us about comedy. The night of the L.A. premiere, the night of the L.A. premiere, I invite my dad, my, my, my dad and my mom to come. They, they hadn't really seen any of my stuff, right? And I, we had reached out to Norman's office. Norman, will you be there, please? You're the only one that's really understood this project. And he had to go to a Matt Damon premiere that night. And I'm like, God damn it, Matt Damon. But the credits are rolling to our film, just like tonight. And I look in the back of the audience and there's Norman in the white bucket hat. And the audience is filled with all these comedians, right? Because the movie's all about stand-up comedy. I was like, ladies and gentlemen, Norman Lear. All the com- I, you, I know you remember this. All the comedians in the audience, they stood.
2: They were just like, Norman! He
1: comes to the front of the audience. He sits down, right? I'm freaking out. I'm, yeah, I'm doing what I'm doing right now. I'm freaking out.
4: <laughs>
1: and I'm, I'm trying to ask him all these questions. Oh, how did you push the boundaries with Ahmad and Jeff? Oh, I heard that you got notes. And then when Archie came down and they implied sex and I heard you st- stick it to the CBS. <laughs> and he goes, Hassan, stop. Wait, wait, stop. Um, why aren't you, where, where, where's your family? Focus on what's important. Where's your family? I go, oh, yeah, my, da- my dad's right there. You know, my dad's sitting <laughs> there
2: right?
1: up And um, you turn, you said this to my dad. You go, uh, you know, Mr. Minaj, your, your son has been working really, really hard on this film. And um, I think you shouldn't let him be a lawyer. <laughs> you should let him be a comedian you should let him change the world. I don't know how you knew, but you said it, and it, it hit him. And uh, that was in, in, in 2013. And um, <clears throat> October 3rd, 2014, I got hired as the last correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart because my dad said, I'll, I'll support you. And that was because of you. And um, I don't know how to thank you, but uh, enough. Because um, there's this really, I've gotten into this argument with my dad all the time. Um, When 9-11 happened, uh, we were all sitting down at dinner. And um, I heard a thud outside. Me and my dad, we run out, and all of uh, our windows had been shattered. And we go, he goes, Hassan, get the broom. We go to get the broom, and um, I look at my dad, and he's not mad, and I'm like, why aren't you mad? And, you know, they just, just destroyed all of our stuff. And he goes, Hasan, Hassan, this is the price we pay for being here. And there's times that um, my dad would have these Archie Bunker moments. You know, where he would just say these things. And I, I refer to the show to tell him, hey, you know, Norman is the one who taught us to have the audacity, as a minority, to work twice as hard, to, ha- to ask for twice as much. Not work twice as hard to ask for half as much. I just want to say thank you so much for giving that inspiration to, me, to so many people. I can't thank you enough.
2: Now, truth to tell, I sat here all the time before you said this and said, how do I know this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Here's what I want to, I can, I've got to, give me a couple of more minutes. I've got to tell you, I've, I've got to tell a story. I've got to tell a story. I mean, when you say this, I remember so well sitting around outside at that table and what I got from you. I didn't remember who the hell you were as you're telling the story, but I remember very well once you remind me. I made a film a lot of years ago in, <clears throat> in, uh, in uh, uh, Iowa, Greenfield, in Iowa. Iowa. It's called Cold Turkey. On the 20th, and we had a great summer, A uh, 100 or so of us from Los Angeles in this little town in Iowa and had a great summer. Um, the 25th anniversary of the making of that film in Iowa, uh, the city called me asked if I could come and would I bring a couple of members of the cast. They wanted to celebrate the 25th anniversary <coughs> of the filming of Cold Turkey in Greenfield, Iowa. We went. In the film, in a montage where people are misbehaving because they promised to give up smoking the, at midnight the previous night, they're looking for their first, uh, their, their first morning, haven't got a cigarette and, and pledged not to smoke. Anyway, they're misbehaving. I did a montage in the film, but somebody kicking a dog, somebody screaming at him. And in one shot, maybe a second and a half in the film, a little girl is crossing the street on her way to school, she's got big glasses, she's carrying books, and a mother monitor who was a smoker, a traffic monitor, is screaming at her, screaming at her. Very funny little moment, a second and a half on her. 25th anniversary, the woman, is there, she's now 31. And, uh, and, and she's got these big glasses to show me that <laughs> who she is. And she says, Mr. Lear, that was the most, I can't tell you how important that was for me. I can't tell you. And uh, we hugged and it was the sweetest moment. 20 years go by, I'm out selling my book two summers ago. And, uh, and I get a call from Greenfield they, they know I'm traveling, selling my book. They would like to have a dinner for me. They want to name a marquee, a theater after me. Okay. And could I come? Of course, I'm peddling the book. Why don't And I go to, <laughs> I, I, I go to Greenfield. <laughs> and there's a big dinner. They, have a, they name a theater after me. The governor introduces me, 400 people at dinner. It's just a great evening. But the hallmark moment was the, that little girl is now 51. And she gets to me, and she's wearing the glasses to show me. She's in. And she says, Mr. Lear, she says, uh, on the 25th anniversary of, of uh, the film, I told you what it meant for me to be that little girl in your montage. And uh, I said, yes. She said, you were very nice and uh, you were sweet, but, but you didn't get it. And you're going to get it now. I couldn't imagine what on earth she was. She said, I read your book. I didn't have to wait to, for you to come here. I read the book. She said, when you were 10 years old and your father was in jail, you were in Woodmont, Connecticut with your family uh, in the one cottage that an uncle owned that they all could afford to be in because somebody owned it. And uh, and you were alone. Your mother and your sister, you didn't know where they were. and." Nobody understood what you were going through that summer alone with your dad in, in prison. But you had a blue and gray sweatshirt that you used to put on in the late afternoon and in the early evening. And in, in, the, in, and in that gray and blue sweatshirt, you felt stronger and taller and, and older and wiser and better as a, I mean. And you would walk to Sloppy Joe's a place called Sloppy Joe's in Savin Rock. And among those strangers, you would feel uh, better than you did at home with your family in your blue and gray sweater, Uh, sweatshirt. She said, you were my blue and gray sweatshirt. I wept, she wept, we hugged. But what you're saying to me caused me to think of that because each of us, I I mean, I might have had 2,000 decisions to make directing a film in a strange place that day. And all I said was her, you know. And look what it meant to her. So I think what the, the message I get from that is each of us in the course of our days, in the course of our lives, are responsible again and again and again for moments like that. And if you appreciate the size and scope of the creator's enterprise here, this being a planet among a billion, in a universe of which they say there could be a billion, can you get your fingers close enough to measure the distance between any bit of pleasure that any of us deliver to the next person in the course of our days.
0: You can't.
2: It all, we all matter that way. Thank you so
1: much. Mr. Norman Lear.
0: Abbas Kiarostami has been at the forefront of Iranian cinema since 1970 with films like Taste of Cherry, Close-Up, and Ten pushing the boundaries of the form and winning fans like Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino. The director visited the film society often throughout his career, and many of his films had their U.S. premieres in the New York Film Festival. His last film, Like Someone in Love, had its premiere in the 50th New York Film Festival in 2012, and with the help of a translator, the director joined us to discuss it. Let's go to that now.
6: Let me begin with a couple of questions. Could you talk about the decision to make the film in Japan? How did this production come together?
7: Sorry, I cannot uh, speak English, so I asked my interpreter to to do that for
6: me. Man, uh, in the microphone, though, there okay. probably some problems.
7: In the microphone. Okay. <laughs> um, man, the
5: I've been answering this question so many (laughs) times that now I have to confess in in front of you that none of my answers have been accurate. But at the same time, I guess that the combination of all these answers gives a hint of my true reason to do that. But I'm afraid I have no convincing reason for you of why does an Iranian go in an unknown culture, unknown language to make a film in Japan. I'm not quite sure myself.
6: Was the story designed for Japan or was it a story you had and uh, then simply set in
7: Japan?
5: I think the very first idea triggered in Japan once I was there almost 20 years ago and I saw uh, in Roppongi, which is a business neighborhood, uh, we were driving through this uh, area late at night And I saw this young girl who was standing there, and she was dressed as a bride. So I asked why she was there, and I was told that she was probably a part-time escort girl, a student probably, and that's the kind of uniform that they would wear at the time. So that's how it started. But then the story itself, as it was designed, I brought it from Iran to Japan.
6: Could you talk about how you did work with your actors, especially the older actor who gives such a wonderful performance. Uh, did you talk for a long time about the roles or how did you work, especially in terms of their line readings? Maybe what,
5: what I should I tell about been this been man been to start with is that uh, when he came, he told me that he'd been, um, he'd, he'd earned his living through films for 50 years, but only as an extra, that he had never uttered a line in his whole career. And he'd always been in the background. So I was sure then, uh, although I had chosen him, if I told him that he was my main character, he would be too intimidated and uh, turn it up. So I said, I told him that he had a very small role in the
7: film. <laughs> <laughs>
5: So he wasn't given a script, I would just give him his uh, lines for the scene we were shooting the day after, and he had no idea of the general view of the film.
7: Uh, So he was
5: given his lines for each scene that he was about to shoot, and then there were really a few explanations that I would give to him through an interpreter. And then once he was given the general idea of the scene, I would just talk to him very personally in Farsi telling him what what I would really what I really felt about him was that I meant to make the film 20 years earlier but I hadn't because at the time I wasn't still able to understand his state and his age and now we were both ripe for understanding each other and that's the reason why I'm making the film with him and it wasn't about words or or knowledge, it was a matter of feeling. And I'm, I'm sure that he did get something of my feeling, something non-verbal, what's happening between the two of us.
7: Uh, push the um,
5: I think generally speaking, what happens backstage on a shoot is always more interesting than the film itself. <laughs> but it's very much the case of this film because of the presence and of the innocence of that man. I think he was really the character of the adventure we were going through together. And there is one anecdote I really want to tell you before going on on the film.
7: So the,
5: what happened is that once the film was shot, I went to him with my interpreter and I told him that it was a vo- wonderful experience that I had, that I was really happy to work with him, that I really met a gentleman through him, and, but I still wasn't satisfied. There was another film that I wished to go and shoot with him in Japan and he thanked me very politely, but afterwards he told my interpreter the message that I had through her was that um, he, he was very touched by my proposal, but he didn't wish to act again as a, as a main character. He wanted to become an extra again. Go back in the background.
7: And the we've I think this is
5: the very definition of wisdom, of oriental wisdom wisdom that I think Buddha said that that a wise man doesn't go under the spotlight, what I'm doing right now.
6: In recent years, Abbas, you've been doing a lot of work in museums and galleries, and I'm wondering, how do you see the relationship between that work and your continued work on feature films?
5: Well, I think some of these questions would be so long to answer that I wonder how to give a brief answer. The only thing that I can say is that, for me, it's exactly the same thing, I mean, Photographers, um, poetry, uh, films, video art—it's all the same. It's just a way of of doing something about your time, tr- finding a solution to your restlessness, just to express yourself. That's the only way I see it. And um, as as time goes by, I th- I feel that the easiest way for me is photography. That. Um, it's the medium in which I feel more comfortable because there is less uh, this risk of misunderstanding that you have in filmmaking because of the necessity of storytelling. I I, I really feel um, the the obligation of telling a story as an obstacle in my uh, artistic expression which I don't have in video art or in photography. Um, whenever people ask me what's the story of my next project, of my next film, I wouldn't tell and people feel it's because I'm being secretive or something. It's not that at all, it's just that I'm ashamed of of um, summing up a film in three sentences because I'm sure that um, true cinema viewers don't come there for hearing stories. They come, so cinema is not about telling stories. So why should I be able to sum it up in a a pitch? I can't. And uh, and so this embarrassment that I feel, I really get rid of it through photography.
6: Kate, let me get some questions from all of you. Yes. Wait for the microphone.
1: I like very much how Ozu is present as absence in your film. In the old woman uh, sitting on the bench in... The invisible characters, but my question is um, about a scene near the end where a mother and her two children dressed in Halloween costumes are almost run over by a car, and that seems terribly real. Um, uh, What is the uh, ratio of staged and coincidental happenings in this film?
5: Thank you very much for illustrating what I was just saying, that people don't go and see films to be told stories. That wasn't part of the story, but there is something very true in it, which is the whole uh, feel of um, unquietness that you feel in the film. It, It also comes in the scene that you're referring to. So that's just the reason why I was touched by the fact that you showed that people go to get glimpses of, of truth in films. And now I'm going to answer your question.
7: Um, so what
5: actually happened is that this whole set that we built on the place um, was uh, the, the owner, the, 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 land, um, the, the landlord wouldn't let us have it for more than a day. So we had to build it very quickly. We had it just for one day. So uh, this poor lady had taken his kids to school in the morning and then she was coming back in the afternoon and she was just, she wouldn't recognize the place. She was wondering what was going on there. And so that's the reason why she feels a bit confused and she looks confused. But then what's interesting is that you take her her <clears throat> impression uh, for something, maybe she's worried for her kids or something, but I think it's just because the set was suddenly unfamiliar to her, but it came, it, it became part, it got very well incorporated in our story.
7: Uh, I,
5: I just want to tell you how how close I feel to you in the way you watch a film, because me as a director, the only reasons why I go on making films is for this unpredicted moments. For, I don't make film to see what I've designed happen or to see my the actors, say the lines that i've written i do it only for this unexpected moment of of a very small gesture a very small look that an actor can give me that i wasn't expecting rather than perfectly saying the, the the words that i've written
1: Hi, thank you for the film it's it's fantastic um you use the car as a crucible in so many of your films and i'm curious what do you like to drive because I'm assuming you drive a lot. Um, but also, can you discuss the way you, you have the drama in the car?
5: This is also a question I've been answering many, many times that I don't know what convincing answer to find because I've never been asked why I have sequences on sidewalks or in, in houses or in offices, but I keep being asked why cars, why is car a different set? Maybe what I should say, I think each film takes its own set and its own conditions. What I can say now is that all the sequences that I shot before in my other films were misuses of the car because I was practicing for this film. (laughs) And for the very sequence in which the young man comes and enters the car of the old man and they have this conversation together. Uh, the privacy, the intimacy that these two strangers find each other, uh, that they, 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 they find together, is something totally impossible elsewhere. So I think this was the uh, scene I was preparing during all these years. For myself, I really think that uh, the, the most appropriate seats for having serious conversations are in a car there is no better way than being sitting close to each other, not having to look at each other, what can be very heavy and unpleasant at times. So you don't have to be sitting in front of each other, you're looking elsewhere, you just look at the other when you have to, otherwise it's legitimate to look in front of you. And then uh, and none of the two people can go away. When you're having a conversation in a living room, one can easily go to the kitchen or leave the flat. Whereas in a car, you have to stay. So, and and it's also a very intimate and private place. The other people can't hear you. So for me, it's really the ideal situation for serious, fundamental conversation. And I think all of you have already had this experience in your own lives.
3: Uh, I want to say that I I love all of your movies. And I love both of the last two you made, uh, going out of your country, your home country. So if I copy in this one. I know that you don't want to talk about your next project. I just want, if you could maybe say, what language is it going to be spoken? And if you have plans in coming back to your roots and making another film in the countryside of Iran. Uh, microphone. In
7: Chance. Um,
5: Well, I must confess that I'm longing for working again in Iran. I have uh, scripts that are ready, everything's ready except the situation. Mm -hmm. So I do wish to go back in uh, the landscapes that you're referring to, but uh, simultaneously I'm preparing a project that should be shot in Italy.
0: Uh, Hello,
7: Uh, Mr. Kirosutami discussed the wonderful moments of Unexpectedness, unpredictable small gestures and actions. I'd like to know his collaboration with great cameraman, Japanese cameraman, Katsumi Yananizawa, who also worked for many films by uh,
5: Takeshi Kitano. First, a question to you Are you Japanese? I'm asking you the question, but at the same time, I would answer exactly the same if you were in Japanese. What I must tell is that um, my experience with the Japanese crew was among the nicest, the most unforgettable that I've had with uh, a crew in my whole career. Um, The um, relationship was very easy at the same time that there was no relationship. We were not really able to communicate because uh, translation was was a struggle. And whenever it became an obstacle, then the the true relationship would start beyond words and, and understanding each other through translation. So I really had a wonderful experience with the whole crew, not only the DP, and that's the reason why I say that I'm really looking forward to shooting another film in Japan for renewing this experience of of human um com, human experience of this kindness and this very simple obvious va- way of being uh, of the japanese people
6: hi um there's a couple of questions um there there there's very much a theme of um of role play in this one with um the 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 two um characters pretending to be other people and also certified copy also had that um, theme too. So if you could talk about your interest in that. Um, that's first question. The second question is about the um, Ella Fitzgerald song that you use as um, the title. Where did that come in?
7: I start from, from the
5: end. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald is a song that I used to listen to as a teenager uh, when I was a jazz lover. And so I borrowed the title of the film to the song and I also kept uh, the the theme, the music, because I asked um, the my actor, because as the character was from the same generation as me, I asked him if it would suit his own taste as a young man, and he said yes, so it was perfect. This question of role-playing, I've been told before that it was present in this film. I didn't feel it as much. I don't think it's something that, is um, so obvious in life, it's not always the case. I think the two um, issues that can actually make you play roles in your own life is either uh, some insecurity that you can feel with your own identity or situation or a kind of daydreaming, the fact that you're not satisfied with your own life and so you can... Uh, trying to be in somebody else's skin, but uh, apart from that, um, I I guess if you see it, if many people have seen it in this film, it's also the case, but it wasn't really something i meant to make a point about.
6: Okay, to end up, Abbas has asked me if I could call on three people at the same time, and I'll answer you all together. So Jim, first your question. Uh, The landscape of of the physical landscape, the landscape of the body, and the internal landscape of emotions, we know your films. So I wondered, as you moved to making films in the West, words seem to be demanded by audiences, whether you like it or not. So I'd like to know what you think is the function of dialogue and words in your film, and what is the problem with it? Okay, question one. Question oh, sorry, two, I this gentleman over here. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask about, uh, about something that I don't remember seeing in virtually any of your other films, which is violence between people. Um, whether that was a theme you, you have been wanting to explore but haven't been able to, or um, how that came into this scenario, something that I haven't seen in really any of your other films. Um, I love the... The character of the neighbor that it's looking, you know, through the lives of everybody, and I was wondering if, uh, uh, of all the characters in that movie, if you, um, how do I say, if you feel like, like it's a, an alter ego of you that it's inventing and imagining the lives of others. That's one question. You only get one, sorry. (laughs) So the three questions, one, the use of dialogue, the presence of violence, and whether or not the neighbor is a kind of directorial alter ego.
7: Um,
5: So I I think I would have more or less a common uh, answer for the first two questions, saying that it all depends on the situation of the film that there is a truth there is something that is obvious and natural in the context of the film so when i used to make films in iranian countryside the characters were anchored in their landscapes and so they're the silence that was imposed by nature was obvious in their lives and in their behavior, so I wouldn't have uh, taken them away from from their real la- landscape to put words into their mouth. They were just part of that silent uh, landscape. And uh, s- the same for the violence. I mean, violence, I there is violence in real life, and I would never impose violence in a film um, just in order to um, attract the audiences, and I would rather um, smooth it down and, and, and make it more discreet, but here, the situation is a violent one and there is something actually um, emerging between the characters and I just um, show it the way it makes sense, it comes naturally, it comes in the context and the situation between the characters in the society and in the landscape in which they live. So, and I think there we come to your third question, which is, so if I'm just um, being there as a spectator of my characters in their own landscape and their own context, where am I? So, all I can say is that all these characters, they don't come from nowhere. They all exist, but I'm not a creator. I interfere in their behaviors and lives, but I don't create them. I'm just a collector. These people all exist. And this lady, the neighbor that you liked, is somebody who does exist in my own neighborhood in Iran. This is a lady that I've been seeing for 30 years. And one day I saw her in a supermarket in in, the, in, in our street and we looked at each other and I'm sure that I read her mind. I think we say, we thought at the same time how old we had got both of us (laughs) and how something could have happened between us 30 years ago but it was already too late and this is something that I actually added to my script it wasn't in the original script It's so that's all I do I just look around and I I take stories that already exist and I just adapt them in my own ways so you are right they're all my alter egos I'm the neighbor, I'm the old man I'm also this yeah. jealous, violent young man, and I'm even this very kind um,
7: pimp. <laughs>
5: There's also something that Richard just reminded me of, so I want to tell you the
7: story.
5: Richard said that he perfectly remembers my house in Tehran and also my neighbors.
7: Not Farad in Hamsoye. ambiance.
5: The whole neighborhood, not
7: just that lady.
5: So he came to Iran like 15 years ago, and I went to pick him up at the airport, I guess.
7: And I remember
5: driving through Tehran, taking him to the nicest area with the beautiful avenues and trees. Because I've been told enough that I give a wrong image of Iran to, um, to foreigners because they all think that we live in the countryside and there are no roads, etc. So I thought this one, I must take him in the nicest neighborhoods to Tehran, drive through the city to my place. And so when I finally got to my street, which is a, a kind of a very wide coup de sac we got there, and as soon as I turned in my street, I saw something that I had, that I had never ever seen. I'd been living there for 30 years. Something that never happens in Tehran. All of a sudden, I saw like 50 camels sitting in the middle of the street. <laughs>
7: And
5: the most interesting thing is that I was astonished because I'd never seen such a scene in Tehran. But then I looked at Richard and he was perfectly acting normal, as if for you people it's normal. We must be driving camels, all of us. <laughs> I thought you had brought
6: the camels
7: for me. <laughs>
5: These are, I, this, this is one of the two great memories that I have with Richard. I won't tell you the other one.
6: <laughs> anyway, that's all we have time for. Abbas, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, for your translation. Thank you as well.
1: The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org. F I L M L I N C.org. The Film
2: Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.